Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, and this morning we're going to be reading verses 13 through 21. Please give your attention to God's Word. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. The very heart of this passage, the very center of it, Peter lays before all of us who would claim to be disciples of Jesus Christ an extraordinary challenge. It's really an impossible goal. He says to all of us, be holy. As he who called you is holy, you also shall be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Lest there be any hope in any of us that the book of Leviticus doesn't have any meaning for somebody who under grace. He drives home the point that the identity of God's people is supposed to be still about holiness. To be like God in righteousness. Now, I'm sure you've picked up on the fact, if you've been with us through this past month, that Peter is making a transition at this point in chapter 1 because he's been reveling in the first 12 verses in the salvation that is ours in Christ. He's been rhapsodizing about salvation by grace alone. But then he makes a transition and he says, Therefore, therefore, he shifts gears to impress upon us the purpose of our salvation. Why did God save us? Did he only save us to rescue us from the flames of hell? Or did he have a much higher purpose than just rescue? Peter makes clear to us that God's purpose for our lives is to make us holy. To transform us into saints. We're called saints, and we're in a lifelong process of becoming saints, or holy ones, as the word means. The New Testament often talks about the pursuit of holiness as though it were a race. Many passages in the New Testament put it in the terminology of a race. For example, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Therefore, let us lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And that's the consistent message of the New Testament, is that the pursuit of holiness is hard work. 
And it takes preparation. And it takes pain. And it takes sacrifice and suffering. Just like any long-distance runner would know. And here in verse 13, if you look back to the first verse we read this morning, you'll see that Peter is speaking to us. Well, you might not see it at first, but if you dig a little deeper, you'll see very quickly that Peter is addressing us as spiritual athletes in this race pursuing holiness. He says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, be holy. Now, in the original Greek, the language there is kind of interesting, where it says, in English, the translation says, preparing your minds for action. It's a much more uh, picturesque terms in the original Greek. It says, gird up the loins of your mind. Gird up the loins of your mind, which is kind of indelicate language, maybe, in our day and age, but it's very vivid image to a, a, a somebody in the first century, because largely in the first century, they would wear those long, flowing robes. And so if you were going to run in a race or work hard at anything and you needed freedom of movement, you would pick up the bottom of the robe and you'd pull it up and you'd tuck it into your belt. Kind of look like an oversized diaper at that point, I guess. But anyway, that's how you would free up your legs to be able to move freely and especially if you needed to run. So if you're going to run a race... You better gird up the loins by pulling that robe up and tucking it in your belt so that you can run with all your effort. And that's what Peter's using that graphic imagery, and he's saying to us, prepare to run the race. Discipline yourself. Work hard. Be ready. He goes on to say, be sober-minded. And he's literally using the word that would you would use to keep from being drunk on alcohol. But of course, throughout the New Testament, it uses this kind of language not only to speak about avoiding drunkenness due to drugs or alcohol, but it also is referring to spiritual intoxication. Keep your mind clear. Don't be distracted. Don't have your judgment impaired. Keep your focus on what you're about. And so this is the language challenging us to make the pursuit of holiness, the race to be a saint, to be holy in the sight of a holy God, that this is something that we are daily to be disciplined about, to prepare for, to work hard at, and to make sacrifices for. You get that that strong emphasis at the beginning of this passage. But then it raises the question, he's emphasized grace so much in the first 12 verses, is he saying that God saved us, rescued us from hell, And then put us on this race, and then does God sit back and then wait for us to put in all the energy and work and effort to bring it to completion? We're in the race by grace, but do we run the race by works? Is that what Peter's saying here? Well, when I think of the race to holiness, my mind goes back to that great movie from 1981. You know that the best picture, the Academy Award for Best Picture in 1981, was given to a surprising film that year, Chariots of Fire. It's a classic now, artistic, unusual film. But Chariots of Fire was about two runners, particularly. They're two main characters. They were, and it's based on a true story, leading up to the 1924 Olympics. These two runners were one English runner named Harold Abrams, Abrahams and a Scottish runner named Eric Little. 
Eric Little was the son of a mission, of China, missionaries to China. He was a devout man of God. He loved the Lord. He was a great proclaimer of truth. And he was the greatest runner in the history, in the, in the nation of Scotland. Harold Abrahams, on the other hand, was the greatest runner in, in England. And the whole movie sets up this great competition leading up to the Olympics that year. And most Christians remember this movie for the sacrifice that Eric Little made. Because as you remember the story, if you know the story, he was, his best race was the 100 meter race. And it got scheduled during the Olympics on the Lord's Day, on the Sabbath. And Eric Little, because of his convictions about not, not breaking the Sabbath, refused to run that race, even in spite of all the pressure that his countrymen and even political leaders put upon him. And he ends up running. Somebody else gave him a spot in one of his weaker races, the 400 meter. And in that great race, uh, great scene from the movie, he actually wins the 400 meter race. And so we think of that movie and we think of what a great man of God. There's a guy who not only ran a physical race well and with integrity, but he ran his spiritual race well and he showed commitment and he showed conviction and he showed sacrifice. And certainly all of that is true. But when I watch that movie now, what really strikes me isn't the sacrifice that Eric Little made and doesn't really elevate him on a pedestal so much as what really strikes me is the difference between the character of Eric Little as the movie portrays it and the character of Harold Abrahams. Because Harold Abrahams was of Jewish lineage, but he was a very secular, worldly person. And Harold Abrahams was driven by competition, driven by pride. And he's driven by, as you see it in the movie, driven by his fear of failure. And he was a deeply troubled man, jealous, a lot of darkness in his character. And that's in great contrast to the character of Eric Little, a man who was humble, joyful, and at peace. And so when I think of that, and I think of those two runners, I think of the Christian life, and I think, you know, that's the difference between somebody who's trying to make it by works and somebody who's living by grace. Do you remember that great line in the movie when Eric's sister asks him, why, why do you pour so much of your life? Why do you work so hard at running? There are so many more important things in the world. Do you remember his response? He said, and this is a direct quote from the movie, I believe that God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. I don't know whatever your calling is in life, but when you're in your calling and when you're in the race that God has called you to run and you do it with the right motivation, that's how it feels. When I run, I feel His pleasure. That's what drives you. And that's what I want to talk about this morning because when Peter talks about the race to be holy, he's talking about that kind of motivation. It's not only important that we sacrifice and work hard and strive to be holy in the Christian life, but it's even more important that we do it all for the right reason. That our hearts are right. That we're motivated by the right things. And I think that's what Peter's pointing to in this passage. What should motivate us to pursue holiness? I think there's a great deal of confusion in the church these days about what should motivate us to pursue righteousness, to pursue holiness. Peter tells us, basically, the great 
triad of virtues, faith, hope, and love. He actually does them in a different order here. He tells us to set our focus on our hope and then our love and then our faith. That's the order. First of all, we should be driven. Our motivation should be found in this race for holiness. It should be found in the hope of the promises of God. Hope in the promises of God. Look at what he says in verse 13. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's how you run the race well. Is by setting your hope, seeing the finish line. We can see the finish line. It's portrayed for us in Scripture. Keep your hope set and focused on that finish line, on that great day when our salvation will be revealed. If we are saved by grace, then we will finish the race. We must never forget that. If we are saved by grace, then we will finish the race. Go back to verses 3, beginning of verse 3, where Peter is describing this great salvation. He says there that God gave us an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It is kept in heaven for us. It's secure. It's safe. Not only is our inheritance and our salvation safe and secure in heaven, but he goes on to say that we are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Our salvation, in a sense, in the mind and plan of God, was finished before the foundation of the world. It's ready to be revealed, especially now that Christ has accomplished it. It's secure. It's being kept in heaven, and we are being kept to be sure that we will enjoy and experience it. So what this means to us today, as we struggle with our sin, as we struggle with the sins of everybody around us, as we strive for holiness, Peter says, set your hope fully on the revelation of that salvation. On that day it's going to come, the end of the race, the finish line. No matter how difficult the battle becomes, no matter how often we fall, no matter how often we fail, there's always the certainty That one day we will be holy. We will be perfect. Sin will be taken away. Our thoughts will be pure. Our attitudes will be pure. Our actions will be pure. Paul said in Philippians chapter 1 verse 6, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. You see, it's because salvation is by grace alone that we can be sure. Because it's His work. And God has never failed to complete a job that He started. And He never will. Paul goes on in chapter 2 of Philippians to say this. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Yes, it is hard work. It is sacrifice. It's struggle. It's toil and tribulation. But through every moment of it, God is working in us and through us to accomplish His purpose. And His purpose is to make us holy. We've ruined a whole generation of kids by telling them that they're inherently special. That they can do anything they set their minds to do. That all they have to do is just say no. That they can do it. They have it in them. They need to believe in themselves. And Peter says, no. Work hard, but base your motivation in God's 
work in you, his promise to complete his work in you. There's where your trust lies. There's where your motivation comes from. A passion for holiness is fired by belief in the promises of God. He will do what he said he would do. He is faithful. So our obedience is different. If we're saved by grace, then our obedience is different because it's driven by hope. But that hope is also fueled by a growing relationship. We see these two things come together in 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. John says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Now listen to how John concludes that thought. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Do you see what John's saying? It's the certainty that one day we will see God face to face and we are his children and we will see our father in all of his holiness and perfection and purity. And on that day, we will be like him. We we must be like him in order to see him face to face. And everybody who has that hope purifies present tense today in the midst of our sin and toil and struggle. It's because of that hope that we purify ourselves. That we sacrifice, that we struggle, that we fight for righteousness. And so that brings me to Peter's second point because he stresses, doesn't he, in this passage, that God is now our Father and we are His children. That's a very strong theme in these verses, isn't it? He is our Father and we are His children. Look at verses 15 and 16. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. You used to be outside of the family of God. You used to be slaves to sin. You used to be idolaters, serving false gods and false goals and false moral standards and codes of ethics. But now you are an obedient child. You see, we're driven by our identity. We're driven by what we love. And the effect of idolatry is to bring us into conformity to that which we love. If we love false gods, we're going to become like false gods. If we love the ways of this world, we're going to become like the ways of this world. Paul talked about this over in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 17. He says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds, They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And such, he would later say, were some some of you. In your idolatry, that's what you live for. That's who you were trying to impress. That's who set your standards. But then he says down in verse 24, and to But you now have been called to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. The new self is the identity of being a child of God. We have his spiritual DNA now. We are born again, Peter said. We are given a new nature, a new self to be like our father. We have a new love in life that we didn't have before. As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. 
If you were to go through Scripture and count up the references to the attributes of God, it's no contest. Holiness is by far the prominent characteristic of God, the attribute of God that you see from, in Scripture from beginning to end. And we are called to be like Him. We should love holiness. That's not our old nature. But the new nature we've been given by grace is to love holiness. Why do we love holiness? Because God is holy. And we love God. You can't love God and not love holiness. Because God is holy. Holy, 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 according to Isaiah. Holiness is a means to draw nearer to our Heavenly Father. No matter how difficult it is, that's why we pursue it. That's why we strive for it. Is That's how we get close to our Heavenly Father. Peter stresses that just because we are in a father-son, father-daughter, loving relationship with God, that doesn't change his standards. Peter says in verse 17, If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear through your time of exile. You know, you hear what he's saying? Yes, God is your father. Yes, you are adopted into his family. You are his child for all eternity. But he doesn't stop being judge. He doesn't take off his role as judge and set it aside to become your father. He remains the judge, not only of the world, but of you. He's still the righteous judge of all mankind. He still sets the standards and judges us by the standards of his holiness. And so... We do serve with fear, not the cowering fear of a, of a convict who's about to be condemned, for there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but the kind of fear that a, a child properly has towards a good, faithful, and loving father. A fear not only of discipline, which we certainly should have, because God loves us, and if we sin, then he will discipline us. But also the loving, reverent fear that says, I don't want to alienate my father. I want to be close to my father. I want my father to be pleased with me. I don't want to be alienated from him. So therefore, I'm going to hate sin and love holiness. That's a desire of the new nature given to us by grace. For us, sin isn't just breaking laws. Sin is offending and grieving our Heavenly Father. So you see Peter saying, first of all, that obedience, the pursuit of holiness, is first of all driven by hope in the finished work of God and the ongoing but fit work that will be finished by His grace. It's also built in love. It's based in love. Love for God as our Father. But then thirdly and finally, he brings in faith. And that's actually the focus of our faith, because he says that our obedience should be driven by faith in the cross of Christ. Verses 18 and 19, Peter says, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Now, even though he's writing to a lot of Gentiles, he purposely draws upon the Old Testament Revelation of the Passover. He presents Christ as the Passover lamb. That perfect lamb that's blood was shed as an atonement for sin, as a substitute. 
Every worshiper in the Old Testament deserved to die and be condemned for eternity for their sins, but God allowed for a Passover lamb to be slain in their place, to shed its blood in their place. And that blood represented a covering for their sin, the means of forgiveness, the means of being accepted by God. And Peter draws upon all that and he says, as you pursue holiness, as you strive and work hard and sacrifice to be like God your Father, never lose sight of the fact that God bought you that privilege. He bought you and gave you not only the ability, but the certainty of achieving that goal. One reason that we become lethargic and apathetic in our pursuit of holiness is that we lose sight of the cost of our of the ransom that was paid for us. That's one reason we come to the Lord's table as often as we can. So that we never lose sight of the cost of the ransom that was paid for us. Because this is meant to drive you tomorrow and the day after and next week and next month and next year and next decade to drive you in your pursuit of holiness because this was the cost of getting you into the race. One of my favorite, I'd say absolutely my all-time favorite music video was one done a few years ago for Johnny Cash. Did you ever see the video for Hurt? The song Hurt? I'd encourage you to go home and Google it, Johnny Cash and Hurt, and watch the video. This was a video that was done very close to the end of his life. And if you know anything about Johnny Cash, and it's great reading, read one of his, there's actually a, a, a biography of Johnny Cash written by a Christian that gives insight into his spiritual battles. But a fascinating life of somebody who was striving to know God and be like God, but yet failing miserably and was enslaved by many sins. Well, if you know Johnny Cash's life, this is actually singing a song written by a rank unbeliever. But the words of the song, and really there's no gospel in the words of the song itself. Let me give you the chorus. The chorus of the song says, What have I become, my sweetest friend? Everyone I know goes away in the end. And you could have it all, my empire of dirt. I will let you down. I will make you hurt. And as those words are being sung by Johnny, and again, very late in life, he's a feeble old man. He's singing these words. They show scenes from over the course of his lifetime. And scenes that show the futility of striving after the world's rewards. And you get glimpses of the hard life that he's lived. But what brings the gospel into that song is that near the end, as all these scenes from his life are being shown, interspersed in those scenes begin to be uh, scenes of Christ being nailed to the cross. And as you watch those scenes interspersed with Johnny's hard life, then near the end you have this old man, Johnny Cash, leaning over with his hands on his face, weeping, And you know what Johnny's saying is, Christ paid for all that I have done. And he felt the weight of the cost of his ransom. And see, the problem is, we don't live with that daily awareness of the cost that the Father paid to bring us, to unite us to himself, to put us in the race to holiness. And the more we dwell upon the gospel, 
The more we dwell upon Christ's sacrifice for our sins, the more we're driven to live by faith, not in our own efforts, but in what He has done for us, and to live in thankfulness for eternity for what He has given. That's why Paul said in Romans 6, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? For the one who has died has been set free from sin. You see, Paul got it. He understood what Peter's talking about. If you understand what sin is and what price was paid for your redemption, why would you ever want to go on living in sin? Both Paul and Peter know that that's the sinful human response to salvation by grace. Hey, Christ died for my sins of yesterday. He died for my sins today. And he died for all my future sins. I've got a blank check. I can live any way I want. I'm telling you, if that's the way you think, you don't understand the gospel. You don't understand the price that was paid for your salvation. You don't understand what it is to have a holy, loving, faithful father in heaven. And you don't understand that his purpose for your life is good and perfect. And it's to make you like him. And that's your hope. You see, I feel that we need to stress this these days because as I look around the church, and especially churches like this one that have a lot of young adults in it, there is a huge backlash going on in the church right now against the legalism of a prior generation. Bible-believing churches got this reputation for being legalist, for being hypocrites, and this generation has as we often do in the church, is swung to the other end of the spectrum. We don't want to be legalistic, so we're going to be licentious. We're going to say that we're saved by grace, so we're going to say it doesn't really matter how you live. We're going to give up on the race to holiness. And you see, Peter would have none of that. Grace doesn't lower God's standards of perfection. Grace only provides another way to meet those standards through Christ's death and resurrection. That's what grace does. The goal remains the same. We are justified by faith, and then we are given the Spirit that our hearts might be transformed and our life might become like our Heavenly Father. Be holy as He is holy. It's our motivation in pursuing righteousness that shows that we are a gospel-preaching church because we're motivated by hope in God's promises. We're motivated by love of God the Father and we're motivated by faith in and thankfulness for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on our behalf. That's why we could say, and we can rejoice when we come to worship and say, when we run this race to holiness... We feel His pleasure. We feel His pleasure. Paul said in Philippians 3, verses 12 to 14, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for running our race badly. 
Forgive us even for our works of righteousness, which have been motivated by pride or a desire to earn your favor. Lord, forgive us for our apathy. Forgive us for for forgetting the cross. Lord, fill us with hope in your completed work, which will be revealed when Christ comes again. Fill us with love for you as our Father, the kind of love that drives us to be like you and to please you. And drive us by a faith and a remembrance and a thankfulness in the finished work of Christ at the cross. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.